I'm Jen Abramov, and you're listening to The Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 187, and on today's show, the topic at hand is Redux, and we're talking with Dan Abramov, the mastermind behind Redux. Not only did we dive deep into Dan's past and where he came from to become a software developer, but we also dove deep into JavaScript, Redux, React, talked a little bit about Elm and ClojureScript and functional programming in JavaScript as a whole. Dan shared tons of advice and tons of great insight into the inner workings of Redux. We had four awesome sponsors, Codeship, TopTal, Braintree, and also Linode. Our first sponsor is Codeship. In the new year, January 12th, they have a free webinar you have to check out. Codeship's engineer, Laura Frank, is going to give an overview of Docker's ecosystem, Docker Compose, Docker Machine. She's going to talk about containers, and you'll learn about Docker images, why they're so powerful, and how you can start running services in containers. And when it comes to web apps and Docker, you'll understand how to develop your web apps using Docker, working with images, registries, and running services in containers. The link to this webinar is rather long, so I'm going to put it in the show notes. But you can also go to resources.codeship.com and look for webinars in that list. And it's going to link to the same webinar I'm talking about. Or head to the show notes and click the link there. Again, totally free, January 12th, 2016 from noon Eastern Standard Time to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's one hour and now on to the show. Everyone, we're back. We have Dan Abramoff here, uh, maker of Redux and so much more. But uh, Jared, this this show got started by an issue. Can you tell the story about the, the issue that got ponied up to, to get Dan on the show? No, I don't remember the issue. Can no? you tell it? Oh, no. man. Put me on the spot, bro. Uh... Well, actually, it was, how do we say his name? Let's see. His name is Kevin McGee. Okay. And he posted an issue. Let's see. It was about November 10th, so not too long ago. And he said, consider interviewing Dan Abramoff, project lead mastermind. Dan, you got mastermind, bro, uh, of Redux, a predictable state container for JavaScript apps. So we, we kind of knew about Redux already, but... That's how this uh, this got started. Dan, you you chimed back in, and uh, we said, "Hey, get in touch with us. We'll start communicating around dates." And so here we are. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you. And uh, you know, one of the ways we love to to open up this show lately it's it's been a growing trend to kind of dive a little bit deeper into who our guests are. So aside from being the mastermind, the the product, the project lead behind Redux. Who is Dan? Who are you? How do you introduce yourself? Well, uh, I'm a 23 years old guy from Russia. Uh, I have a wife and a cat. Uh, I just moved to London. Uh, Before that, I lived in St. Petersburg pretty much my whole life. I lived a little bit in Moscow, but mostly St. Petersburg. And I don't know, I guess that's it. I haven't really done much to uh, have something to tell about myself in this way. What brought you to London? Uh, I'm actually starting. I have already started uh, working here. I work at Facebook now, 
So I'm in a boot camp. It's not, uh, I'm not doing actual work <laughs> right now. I'm just helping out different teams and kind of learning about the Facebook internal structure, about different teams that are there, uh, what kind of tools they use, the infrastructure, the people and stuff like that. And I'll go to, um, to MPK, which is, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> I started actually talking with these crazy, uh, uh, cr crazy abbreviations that they use. So, uh, I'm going to Menla Park in January, uh, to, for two weeks as part of my bootcamp. And later I graduate from the bootcamp and I'll be working on React Native team in London. Interesting. So what's, uh, what does the bootcamp involve? Uh, it involves, um, you go to classes, uh, to, I assume, learn some things, uh, some internal tools and the languages that they use and uh, just kind of get to know what different people, different people on Facebook are working on because there are so many teams, there are so many projects. Uh, I'm actually pre-allocated to React Native. So uh, most of people uh, in Bootcamp, uh, they go through Bootcamp to uh, later choose a team. But I'm just going through Bootcamp to, um, I don't know, to do something different before uh, working on React Native. Uh, and it's also a great way to kind of socialize and to uh, get to know a lot of people because you're going to need people later when you work in the projects. So Facebook is very uh, social inside. I did not actually uh, anticipate it uh, to be so, but Facebook is very uh, people oriented and uh, people uh, use Facebook to communicate inside Facebook and they ping each other all the time. And it's best to know uh, as many people as you can to do your job, job efficiently. That's interesting. Is any any particular challenges that uh, that you're you're facing now as you step in? It sounds like you were not so much not social, but it was a surprise to you. Is that do you have any concerns there? No, not really. <laughs> I, I think the main concern for me right now is to figure out my uh, kind of life kind of issues, like settling in. I need to find a, an apartment to rent. I'm currently living in a temporary uh, account, uh, apartment in London, but it's going to expire uh, in a couple of months. So I need to do that. I need to get the insurance. I need to get some kind of numbers so I can go to hospital or whatever. Uh, just a lot of life stuff that I have to deal with. Oh. And I, I never moved to another country before. So, And when I was in Russia, my mother used to do that for me. So uh, the paperwork is... It's kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned you have a wife and a cat. So I imagine they're with you or they're on their way soon. What's what's the situation there? Yeah, they're with me. Um, we uh, actually, UK has very strict uh, restrictions uh, with regards to moving pets. So we had to hire uh, a company that would uh, take the pet uh, with a special agent and through a special airline. And it costs uh, a lot of money, but... Yeah, <laughs> we have the cat here now. You must love that cat. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back a bit. And you mentioned you're 23 years old, so you're not old. You're not young. Uh, so just to kind of give some perspective here, I'm 36, about to be 37 here this coming March. Uh, okay. Jared, you're 33, right? Right. So you're 23. You're basically 10 years and a few more younger than the two others on the call with you. So. Not that that matters in terms of your age, but uh, just kind of diving back a bit in your history. Can you can you talk a bit about where you've what you've been doing in the last couple of years? What got you into programming? 
where have your interests been lying in the past couple of years? Uh, I started programming when I was 12 years old, I think. And it actually started, uh, it wasn't on purpose. Uh, we did have programming in high school, but uh, I didn't like it because it was Pascal uh, mostly. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand uh, why we need to sort arrays and that kind of stuff. So I wasn't interested. Uh, and I actually got into programming when doing different school assignments. Um, I, I loved PowerPoint. So PowerPoint was my favorite software uh, when I was a kid because uh, I liked to create the facts and animations and to schedule animations one after another. And uh, I love this kind of stuff. And uh, I think once I found um, a menu called Service Macros. So Macros, uh, if you don't remember in Microsoft Office, you can record uh, some actions and then press play and they are automatically repeated. Right. And you can actually edit that code. It generates Visual Basic uh, code and you can edit it and uh, the macros do something different. And so I was hooked back then and I bought some books and my grandma used to uh, go with me to the bookshop and every few weeks uh, she would buy me a new book as a treat. Uh, so I started with Visual Basic, uh, but later I transitioned to .NET, C Sharp, uh, and uh, eventually I got a job when I was 18. So this is how I started programming. What was that job at 18? Uh, it was a job at an outsourcing company in Russia. Uh, so it's it's a joint uh, Russian-American company called Data Art. Uh, they do uh, projects for different enterprises like financial companies, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, it was fun in the beginning because I, I just, I got a real job finally, right? Right. <laughs> it, it was fun and I got to get paid for uh, what I like to do. So uh, I learned a lot there, but later uh, it was just too much enterprise uh, stuff. Like, I don't know if you know Microsoft SharePoint. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, th that's that's the worst. <laughs> Unfortunately, right, Jared? Mm -hmm. Yeah, t t 2007, it was back then. And so uh, everybody kept using very old software, very complicated software, piles of complicated software, one on top of the other. And I was just really tired of that. And on the other hand, uh, my skills were mostly um, in native development, meaning Windows native development. And... Uh, I didn't, I didn't know how to create mobile apps or I didn't know how to create websites. And I felt a little bit scared that maybe I just can't do, maybe I cannot learn it. Maybe it's too complex for me. So I stayed away uh, from it for a while, but after that I quit my job and uh, I was lucky enough that my mother could support me for like six months uh, and pay my rent while I learned web technologies. Uh, so I, uh, I went to an internship, which is not exactly an internship. It's just, uh, it was a volunteer club of people, uh, helping one, uh, Russian entrepreneur build his websites and projects. Uh, so the, uh, conditions were that, uh, we don't get any money. Uh, but on the other hand, we just get to learn different th things for free. And he doesn't care that we're not actually good because he just wants things done and we want to learn. Hmm. 
so we had this club and I learned uh, Git and CSS and jQuery and Python Django uh, just by helping him do his projects. And there were like 10 people there, but we had a lot of fun. And later, uh, after that, I got some idea about JavaScript, although not, I wasn't really an expert. I didn't know uh, how, what is this and, you know, these kinds of JavaScript gotchas. Uh, but anyway, I was looking for a job and I got a job at a startup. So I was working at a, uh, at a Russian startup, which pretended not to be Russian. <laughs> uh, it is called uh, Stampsy. Hmm. Uh, it's like uh, medium, but for images and multimedia content, videos, audios. And uh, back then we were focused on creating an iPad application. Uh, that would allow you to create and consume uh, this kind of multimedia content, like small magazines that you can create right in the application. And I didn't have any iOS experience, but again, I, I was lucky to be somewhere where I could learn on the go. And this probably helped. I think this is something that helped the most uh, in my career, that I was lucky to find uh, several places where I'm always able to... Uh, learn at the go and not come with some large portfolio or whatever. So I learned iOS while working on an iOS application and both me and uh, one of the other developers, we knew C-sharp, we didn't know uh, Objective-C and Swift did not exist back then. So uh, we just, we wrote the iPad app in C-sharp uh, and we used Xamarin back then. And it was a hybrid app because the editor, the part where you actually create the post, uh, it needed to be uh, based on the web technologies because we wanted to um, to bring it to the web later. Uh, so it was a hybrid app. We had to learn a lot about the breaches, that kind of stuff. Uh, so it was a lot of fun to build it. And when we released it, it was featured by Apple on the first day and uh, it stayed the uh, uh, pretty, like it's straight uh, featured and it was in top uh, hunted for a while, for a couple of weeks, but people didn't really use uh, use it in the ways that we hope uh, they would use it. And uh, after the initial uh, interest, it just fell, like nobody remembered it. And so we uh, stopped working on it and we uh, started working on the web version instead because we figured that the people who have professional looking beautiful content they don't uh, have this content on their iPads and what they usually have on iPads are uh, low quality photos which are right. not exactly the content we wanted so uh, we then created the web version and we had no idea how to build a web application <laughs> so uh, we learned a little bit of backbone and it kind of worked for, the, for some time until the application got dynamic uh, and we had these pop-ups and model windows, tabs inside them and a complicated drag and drop post editor. Uh, and it was very hard to create a really dynamic, really uh, interactive UI with Backbone. So this is when we started looking at React and kind of played a little bit with it. And gradually we rewrote our app in React and Flux and this is basically how I got involved in React community because uh, it was too very young. And I mean, when I 
when we added uh, React to SMC, uh, I think the React router didn't exist. Wow. So this was the time before React router. And when it finally came out, I was like, hey, it's time to switch from Backbone completely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we switched to React, and when we had a redesign, uh, we had a chance to switch to Flux. Uh, but later, and I, I mean, it, it was a great experience. I learned a lot there. Uh, but I, I quit from Strampsy uh, in April 2015 uh, because they ran out of funding. The numbers weren't good. Uh, people are using it. There are many users, uh, like, I, I don't know, maybe 40,000 or something. They post the content, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't skyrocketing or something. It, it was just a linear growth. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, our founder died. So mm. that's yeah. I've been through a situation like that where I'm working somewhere and your founder passes away, and it, it's a big shock. Yeah, and it's it's such an unusual thing to go through because not only do you feel lost personally, but you also feel lost corporately. And yeah, it's, it's yeah. so, it's so rough to, to kind of share that with your comrades, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that was by the time I wasn't working there anymore. Uh, I was doing open source stuff and, uh, I kind of lived by <laughs> doing some contracts, uh, doing some contract work and it worked pretty well, I would say. Uh, but it's hard to switch between open source and contract work for me because I just hate switching, uh, context. It's hard for me to work on many things at once. So I was looking for a full-time job and I spoke to Facebook before and they were like, hey, you can come to US, uh, but no, you can't because you can't get a visa to US. Right. Because I don't have, uh, I dropped out of the college. Uh, I don't have the degree and I don't have- What, you dropped but, out? Yes, <laughs> I did. <laughs> So I couldn't get a visa to US and they said, hey, maybe, maybe uh, you can get a, a visa to London later, but we don't have a team there yet. So uh, let's keep in touch. And later at the conference, uh, I was interviewed by the team. Uh, very, uh, it wasn't planned. I basically skipped to the second day of the conference because I was on the interviews. But this is how I got hired. And the past six months were just about preparing all the documents and uh, pass an English exam and all the kind of things you need to do to go to UK. And I'm here. There you go. Well, congrats on that. I mean, yeah, it sounds like your, your trip to where you are now from where you came from is pretty interesting. I mean, just to kind of repaint it for the listeners, you came from a PowerPoint background. I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but that was your first love, so to speak. And then you got into C-sharp because of just your natural progression, then jQuery and Backbone and now where you're at now. And you know, you said you you started your first job in anything at 18 and now you're 23. So in five years, you've gone from, you know, someone who was just, you know, kind of fluent and and maybe just getting started with, you know, native, as you'd mentioned, with Windows. And, and now look at you, you're you're uh, you're at boot camp at Facebook, which is awesome. Yeah, it's cool. You got to give thanks to your grandma and your and your mom, too, for helping out. Your grandma bought you some books, which was yeah. you know, who doesn't love their grandmas, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then their mothers to, to step in and support them whenever, you know, the town needs it. That's such an awesome thing. So I, I guess now that uh, you're in quotes famous, you can give back. Yeah, yeah exactly. At least uh, I hope to do that. Uh, I mean, I'm not right. 
I'm, I'm not doing a lot, but I open source some stuff. So maybe one more topic before we go into the break here. Uh, you'd mentioned that uh, you weren't really, uh, I'm kind of piecing together something I heard elsewhere and then something I heard here, which was mm-hmm. uh, React is what inspired you to contribute to open source. Yeah. You hadn't really been doing anything around open source and you'd mentioned how it was hard to do day job and open source together. Um, yeah. Can you, can you talk about a bit about your first steps into open source and what that looked like for you as someone who came from a world where maybe you weren't contributing or doing much with it? Yeah, I think um, it is really about React being young ecosystem. So if you're, a, if you're an open source, if you're someone who considers maybe contributing to open source, but you don't know where to start, you probably shouldn't create like another HTTP library or something like that, because a lot of those exist. But what you probably should do is find um, find the ecosystem that is young but promising. And this is kind of how I got lucky with React because uh, I needed to build some things for my job because they did not exist at the time and they were necessary. And React provided enough value so that we didn't want to give it up, but then we had to contribute to the ecosystem, right? So this is how it got started for me because my job demanded actually doing something around React that did not exist at the time. And on the other hand, um, I was very, um, I had this personal project called React Hotloader and I was really uh, inspired by the idea of putting uh, two and two together. Uh, there was React with declarative front-end model and there was Webpack with its hot model replacement. And I wanted to bring them together because it just made sense to me. Like, I want this kind of workflow that I saw in Brad Victor videos. Although I know Brad Victor hates uh, people like me, probably, <laughs> because uh, we only take the easy parts from his talks and not the really important and complex parts. But anyway, uh, I was inspired by him and I, I wanted to uh, do something of that sort and share it. And it was my personal project. I remember my wife was like, what the hell are you doing? And it was 5 a.m. <laughs> and I was in the bed and I made this uh, ugly hack, like I changed React internal code just to get it to work somehow so I can record uh, a fancy screencast, a demo in it. Wow. So so I had a fancy demo that only worked for like a single file uh, correctly. And it was full of hacks, but it looked like uh, it actually works. And I recorded this video and Christopher, uh, Christopher, Sh- I'm not sure. Shadow. Shadow. Yeah. yeah, he shared it. So Instant fame, right? Yes. It was like 50 or 70 retweets. And it was a lot for me when I had maybe 30 followers. So this is how it got started. And I, I really felt that people want this. People want this to exist. And I also want to exist. So when I went for a holiday, uh, I, I swam a little uh, in the sea. But after that, I would just uh, uh, go and code for several hours to get this into shape where it actually works for more than one person. And the uh, feedback was amazing. And I think this is what made me, quote, famous. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting story there too. It's it's um it reminds me of the phrase and tell me if you've heard this before, Dan. By any means necessary, you know, like yeah. you have to get somewhere, 
And uh, I can remember a talk I heard back at Lone Star Ruby Conference, the very first one. This guy was um, talking about just shelling out and how it was such a bad thing to do from Ruby code inside of a Rails app or Ruby app and, you know, kind of breaking what is considered the rules, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, it sounds like you're not bound by rules. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, uh, obviously, but yeah, you know, you're gonna yeah. if you have to get somewhere, you're gonna get there. Yeah, and it's also I think it's very important that even if you have a day job, if it's possible, uh, uh, you need to try to uh, have a broad view of what's happening in ecosystem around you and different ecosystems around you because a lot of people get locked into a certain ecosystem like react ecosystem or ember on angular and they love the framework or they hate the framework whatever but they just they don't talk uh, to people outside their bubble and it's a big problem yeah. but most uh really interesting projects they're on the borders of the ecosystem uh most interesting projects happen when one ecosystem collides with another ecosystem or when a project, uh, a, a person takes uh, a lesson from one ecosystem and brings that to another ecosystem. So I think this is really important and this is something I'm trying to do uh, in ways that I can just point people to some nice things that exist elsewhere and maybe people creating those things don't really care that much uh, for us but we need to get inspired by them and we need to steal their good solutions and find ways to uh, figure out if these solutions will help us too. So that there needs to be a healthy, healthy exchange of ideas even between competing frameworks. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I'm glad you said that because that's definitely a good point to bring up, especially when you talk about your entrance into open source and React and how you looked at the ecosystem and thought, how can I bring value back, but also not sticking inside that bubble uh, very important uh, aspect to think about. That's a good spot to, to take a break. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dive deeper into Redux, React, and this journey you've been on. So let's take that break. We'll be right back. Our friends at TopTile launched a scholarship program for female developers to support aspiring female computer scientists, developers, and software engineers to help achieve their goals through financial support and also mentorship. Each scholarship winner will receive a $5,000 scholarship that can be used towards education and professional development goals. You can spend this money on anything you want from coding boot camps to online programming courses, textbooks, you name it. You also get one-on-one -on -one mentoring, an entire year of weekly one-on-one -on -one mentoring with a top-tile senior developer. And this person is going to help you with topics like project guidance, choosing an academic or career path, and also preparing for interviews. Head to toptile.com slash scholarships to learn more and also to apply. All right, we're back with Dan Abramoff. I'm going to say it again. The uh, the mastermind behind Redux, as, uh, as Kevin McGee said. Uh, and Dan, you know, we're just in the break that we're lamenting about your story and what an inspiration it is to, to have that outlook. You know, and even at a young age, like just to be able to have such wisdom to look at the you know, JavaScript react ecosystem and say, how can I add value back in and, and then sharing that back with this, uh, the audience here listening about how you came into open source and how you give back. It's, 
really, really, really interesting. So thank you for sharing that with us. Now it's time to dive a little bit deeper. Obviously, a lot of people are coming to this podcast thinking, I want to hear about the deepest parts of Redux when it comes to what Dan has to say about it. So how do we begin this conversation? Do we just kind of dive in and talk about what Redux is, or is there a better place to begin to start unraveling this story? Uh, it depends on whether you want to come from technology or from history perspective, because usually when I explain Redux, I explain it from uh, where it came from and uh, what what was I trying to solve when I uh, was started working on it. Let's begin there then. That's good. Yeah, okay. So um, I don't know if you know about Flux a lot, but uh, Flux is like Facebook's solution to uh, more to the data layer in React apps. And it's not the dominant solution anymore. Uh, Facebook is actually moving uh, to Relay, which is a different framework they released this year. Uh, so Flux is more, it's, it's, a, it's often described as a pattern and not a framework. Uh, but after Facebook released Flux, there were a lots of different takes on Flux architecture. And some of these takes uh, actually uh, lost some benefits of Flux because uh, either intentionally on, or unintentionally. And uh, they, they also added some value, like better support for server rendering, for example. But anyway, um, by the time I, I started working on Redux in June uh, 2015, and by that time, there was a lot of frameworks, a lot of Flux frameworks. I think the most popular ones were uh, Alt, uh, uh, Flamux, and Fluxible. Mm -hmm. So these were the most popular ones. Uh, and of course, the vanilla Facebook Flux implementation, which uh, I think all of them actually use internally. So uh, I did not want to create a Flux framework. Uh, I tried to not do that for the longest time uh, I could. Uh, I resisted it uh, a lot. And I kind of liked Flamux and I used it in some of my projects. But I had this conference talk that I needed to give because in February I signed up to uh, give a talk at React Europe conference. And the title of my talk was Hot Reloading with Time Travel. So the way I came up with that is that I wanted to talk about React Hot Loader and about this kind of workflow with Hot Reloading uh, and when you just edit a component and see the changes reflected in your browser without refreshing uh, the page, without losing the current state. It's, it's been a huge productivity boost for my workflow and I wanted to share it. But I thought that people have already seen that. And uh, uh, I mean, there was a talk at React conference, the first React conference uh, that mentioned Hot Reloading. Uh, although we did not demo it, I still felt that I don't want to repeat that exactly. Right. So I was looking for more inspiration in Brad Victor's videos and he had this uh, time travel kind of thing where uh, you play a game and then you can rewind to any moment and you can change the code and you can actually see how it's going to happen in the future, given the same actions. Uh, like in the game, you walk uh, to the right uh, and jump. And if you change the uh, arguments to the jump function, 
you're going to see how that jump that has already happened is going to change uh, life as you edit uh, the arguments. So this was something that uh, really excited me. And I wanted to uh, incorporate that in my talk, but I didn't know how. And I made a very quick proof of concept of uh, time travel with overriding React set state method, the method on the component where you set the state. I did some kind of ugly hack where uh, I placed uh, a slider next to every component and I override the uh, set state method to record every previous state and the slider would uh, move between those states. So of course, this is not useful in any real application because you have, uh, I don't know, hundreds of components and <laughs> it's not useful to have slider in front of every component. But it kind of proved that this is possible. And I met a bet. I wanted to go to the conference. I would not have been able to afford the ticket if I, like, if I went as a regular person. So I needed to become a speaker. So I submitted a proposal uh, for my talk called uh, Hot Reloading with Time Travel without actually knowing how to implement time travel. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I had a few months to actually do that. But I was busy with a different project, a different uh, uh, project called React D&D, a drag and drop library that I started writing at my job, but I wanted to uh, rewrite it for 1.0 and I was busy with that. And then it was June and I only had one month until the conference and I needed to figure out how to make a, a beautiful time travel demo uh, somehow. And by the time I had the uh, feeling that it's culture loading is a little bit useless in Flux applications because most of the time you work on this store on the logic of data mutations and not on the components. I mostly had my designer friend work on the components directly, but I was working on the mutation logic. And I could not culture load it because the street is local, it's in local variables. And if you execute this module, this kind of part of the script again, you're going to have the initial values for these uh, variables. So you lose the straight every time. And you also lose uh, the components are still subscribed to the old version of the store you're working on. So if you re-execute that module, if Webpack Hot Model Replacement rewires uh, all the required statements to point to this new version, it's still not going to work because components are already subscribed to the old store that uh, is not the one you're working on. So this was a big problem for me. And I wanted to find a way to add hot load into Flux. And on the other hand, I wanted to find a way to add time travel to Flux because I needed to demo time travel. So I tried to do this with Flummox, but uh, I couldn't find a way to make it work with Facebook's uh, dispatcher and Facebook's Flux system. So I tried to uh, find another way. And I think sometime during this period, I read a document called Elm Architecture. And Elm is a programming language. Uh, it compiles JavaScript, but it's a different, it's a functional programming language created by Evan uh, Saplitsky. And actually I didn't understand the document fully. And this is like a confusing moment because uh, I know la later 
Evan was uh, a little bit angry about me non, not mentioning him in the talk. Uh, and he had every right to do that because uh, indeed uh, Redux architecture, uh, a big part of it is uh, pretty much a ripoff of Elm architecture. But in my defense, I would just say that uh, I think I didn't fully understand Elm architecture and it was just somewhere in my subconscious. And in fact, the first version of Redux, it was not like Elm, it was more like Flux. And it was Andrew Clark, actually uh, the Flamux guy, who helped me uh, figure out how to uh, make it much better, I think. He helped figure out the fundamental reducer composition pattern that we use in Redux uh, for building scalable apps. And uh, Andrew had uh, a ton on in, of influence in Redux. And this is another moment where I think um, it's not very common for a maintainer of a popular open source library like Flamux, which was very popular at the time, to just give up on it and say, hey, I'm going to join this competing project because I think that it's better. And I'm just going to tell my users that I'm making the final release and now I'm going to work on that instead. So Andrew uh, had a very large influence on Redux. He helped figure out a reducer composition which made it more like Elm. And he also designed the extension system for Redux, the middleware and store enhancers. It was his ideas. So uh, initially Redux had a single author in NPM package JSON, but I changed it to be us both because that's the truth. It's a nice example of what you were saying earlier about, you know, keeping your eyes open on these other ecosystems. Here you are, you know, reading yeah. the Elm architecture. Um, well, you're not doing Elm directly, but you're you're taking ideas from there and bringing them over to the areas that you're trying to solve problems. Um, yeah. So Redux comes out of this desire to have an awesome conference talk, basically. That's, that's, that's what I'm yes. getting out of this, which is yeah, uh, exactly. a new thing to me. It's like a upcoming conference talk, demo-driven development, basically. Is, yeah, it's conference-driven <laughs> development. Yeah, there you go. Um Turns out it seems like it's generally useful uh, for lots of things, not just uh, wowing your friends at conferences. Is You say it's inspired by Flux. Is the big differentiation between Redux and Flux is this idea of a single store for your entire application state, whereas Flux has multiple stores? Is that the big differentiator? Or am I missing something? Yes, that's the big difference. And I think it's in how we choose to separate the concerns. So in Flux, you separate the concerns with having different stores, but you also separate the event subscription because you have components subscribing to different stores. And you also separate the street because you have uh, different stores managing different parts of the street. But in Redux, we actually keep the street and the subscription in a single place in the store. And to separate concerns, we create many reducers, which are just functions that tell how state is transformed. And this is kind of similar to how React has one root component, but it's composed out of many components. So in Redux, you have one root reducer that uh, tells how state is updated, but you can call functions from other functions and you can have many as many reducers as you want. And uh, it's like a reducer tree managing your application state. 
So you manage the time travel by basically running those same reducers in the opposite order? The way it works is that there is a big difference. Uh, when people say time travel, they sometimes mean different things. And in Flux, some Flux frameworks actually support time travel, but not the way Redux supports it. So what's more common is that uh, you can travel between existing uh, history and you can uh, change your, you can make your components render any point in time that has previously uh, been, uh, that previously existed. But this is not exactly what Redux does. So what Redux lets you do is that uh, you can go back to some previous state, like uh, a couple of actions ago, then you can change the code of your reducers and it's going to re-execute all actions after and before that so that you're, you're like uh, traveling to a parallel world where uh, the code was different and so all the streets were actually mm. different because it changed the code that uh, computes them. And of course, it's not efficient to do that in production. This is only meant for development. Uh, but basically, we keep all the actions and if the code changes, we reevaluate them from the beginning. Yeah, so the practical benefits of that seem, like you said, they're the best in development where you can try many code paths or many different different reducers or functions and see what the differences are like. Um, what other advantages fall out of this idea of being able to you know, move forward and backward? Uh, it's not so much about moving forward and backward. I mean, it's very cool for impressing your friends and for debugging uh, really mm -hmm. weird state and mutation issues. Uh, like when you have some control that updates really fast and you have Ajax response coming in and then you're not sure that in the middle state something broke, but you're not sure why. So you can step back and see, oh, I'm in this state. I'm going to uh -huh. edit the, the component. The component not renders correct, correctly, it hot reloads. And now you can go back to forward uh, to the current state. And so uh, you can see everything that is happening. And if in some cases the state was not updated correctly, you can see where exactly, because you have the whole history of every action and the state after that, and you can inspect it in a tree view. So you can, you can see uh, where exactly it went wrong. You can fix the code and make sure that now it is correct. And if you make a mistake, if you make, a, make your reducer crash in development, it's just going to say that there has been an error, like fix your code. The error occurred after this action. So you fix the code and then it reevaluates again. Uh, hopefully you fix the error and it renders something different. So it's a whole uh, another a different, more efficient developer workflow. But uh, this is just one of the benefits that slides out of this model with single street. So other benefits are that it's easy to replay uh, user actions. So for example, you can uh, log every action that happens in case you're debugging some kind of issue. You can log every action, you can serialize them, and then you can replay them on your computer and reproduce uh, the bug. And mm. this is possible with Flux too, but with Flux you need to be very careful to implement it in a very specific way. Uh, and in fact, some teams at Facebook don't implement it that way, but you need to be very careful to, uh, to be predictable. And I think Redux makes it easier by imposing more constraints. It also seems like a, a more simple mental model the one thing that I noticed with Flux and um, started looking at it is, man, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things to think about. 
And, you know, there's a lot of diagrams to digest here before I start, you know, building my application. And then, then it was choose your, choose your framework, uh, which your flux implementation, I should say, not your framework, but, uh, which Adam reminds me of, uh, one of my favorite parts in our recent season two of beyond code was Jonathan Burkhold's quote, where he said, we do not need another flux framework. We have about 50,000 flux frameworks. Um, no more. That was, yeah, no more. He says, so that was kind of the. Uh, a shared opinion amongst JavaScript developers uh, at that time. And that was March uh, of last year or okay. March of this year. At which time, yeah, we were being overwhelmed with, with a new uh, flux implementation felt like daily. Um, but there's lots of complexity there. It seems like Redux is just a simplified model and um, having a single state object, similar to the way you think about your React components, right? Where you have a single root yeah. component and it's just a tree of components now on your state um, you just have one object and that object is just a nested tree of other objects and and what have you yeah, is, that the biggest, is that the biggest win in your opinion? Uh, I think another really big win is that um, the testing is so much easier. I mm. think they, this comes up uh, every time I ask people like what do you like about Redux? People say testing because uh, it's 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 not convenient to test the flux stores uh, because they kind of depend on the dispatcher and you know it's like banana gorilla problem when where you want the banana but you get the gorilla in the whole world. <laughs> I never heard that before. <laughs> banana gorilla <laughs> yeah, so, is that what it's called? Yeah, uh, and uh, this is typical object oriented problem, uh, but. In Redux, the reducers are just pure functions, so you can just import a single reducer that manages some part of your tree. And if you want to test it, you don't need any kind of, uh, like, you don't, you don't need to uh, set everything up to set up some mocks. Or if you, if you read the Facebook uh, dispatcher uh, kind of guide to test, then there is some stuff you need to do to make it work. But in Redux, you just call the function with some arguments and you make assertions on its return value. And this is testing Redux. And of course, not all parts are tested as easy as this. Uh, there are some parts that are harder to test, but most of your application logic lives in the reducers. And this is the part that is easiest to break uh, because it's dealing with a lot of state. And this part is very easy to test in Redux. So this is another big win. I think I've started seeing a lot more uh, testing in open source examples that use Redux than I saw in Flux uh, using uh, application examples. Mm, very good. Well, I think this is just the first principle of three core principles that you state about Redux. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to dive more into the implementation and the principles of Redux um, so our listeners can get a taste of not just the history and the why it exists, um, but even more of the how. So let's pause here, and on the other side, we'll talk about those three principles. Right back. Braintree is all about making developer lives simpler with code for easy online payments. If you're searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. For mobile app developers out there, the Braintree V.0 SDK makes it easy to offer multiple payment types. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, traditional credit cards, and whatever's next, all with a single integration. Enjoy simple, secure payments that you can integrate in minutes, 
and developers, they've got you. Don't worry about taking days to integrate your payments. With Braintree, it's done in minutes. And if you don't have time, give them a call and they'll handle the integration for you and walk you through it. Braintree supports Android, iOS, and JavaScript clients. They have SDKs in seven languages, .NET, Node.js, Java, Perl, PHP, Python, and Ruby. And their documentation is comprehensive and it's easy to follow. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash changelog. All right, we are back. And Dan, I want to go through, have you go through some of these principles of Redux. Um, it's a small library, as you said, but it has a uh, very intentional structure and opinions. And so I think the principles are very important. One we've talked about, that's the single source of truth, which is that the whole state of the application is in a single object tree within a single store. Uh, that also is a big differentiator from other Flux implementations where you have multiple state stores. Um, you also have two other principles. Uh, state is read-only is your second principle. And the third one is changes are made with pure functions. Can you walk us through uh, state is read-only and what that means? Yeah, sure. So this is what I took from Flux. And I think Flux really uh, cleared my mind uh, about uh, how to write predictable code. Uh, because be be before Flux, I was using Backbone and I had these models that were calling methods on other modules. And if you can imagine uh, a user object uh, and user can follow another user. And when uh, the user begins this operation, you need to make it optimistically. You want to update the UI uh, right away. So you, the method needs to uh, change the count of followers and followees, and it needs to change the Boolean fields on both objects. And then it needs to make the request. And if the request fails, it needs to roll them back. But if there is a concurrent request, you need to be careful to uh, roll it back to uh, correct value and so on. So it's very crazy with traditional MVC. And what Flux gave us is that Flux said, hey, uh, you don't have setters. You don't actually, you don't change your objects. You don't put methods on them that change them. And instead you've got this source of truth, which is uh, multiple stores in Flux or single store in Redux. And you've got these actions, which are objects, plain JavaScript objects, describing what you want to happen. Like user followed users, uh, user followed user began. And you have two IDs. So this is an object describing the change. And uh, after that, uh, when the request comes through, you dispatch another action uh, that says that user followed user success or failure. Uh, with the IDs of these users. And so every change in the application, every mutation uh, uh, that you want to make to the street, you express it as a plain object describing what happened, like a newspaper. So uh, this is what Flux uh, suggested, and this is also uh, what I kept in Redux. Uh, so you want to actually react to the actions, of course, and uh, in Flux, you register a callback in the store so it can change its internal state. But in Redux, you don't do that. Uh, in Redux, you just write function that takes the current state, the action, and it returns the next state of your application. And this is the function we call the reducer. It's a pure function, so it cannot mutate the previous state. 
what it needs to do is to create a copy of the street uh, with uh, that is updated according to this action. So the state is read-only, and you have these action objects. And the way that you change things is with pure functions. That's your third principle, which you call reducers. Can you explain reducers in more detail? Yeah, so the name uh, reducer comes from array reduce method uh, that is on every array. Uh, it's pretty standard in most functional languages. It's, uh, it's also called fault. A reduce, array reduce method, it accepts a callback. So this callback is what we call a reducer because it's an argument to reduce. But uh, what is reduce? Uh, array reduce is an operation that lets you create a single value out of multiple values. So you can use array reduce to uh, create, uh, to calculate a sum of integers, for example, or to uh, reverse a list, or to pretty much do any kind of accumulation over uh, some kind of stream of values. Uh, and in, in case of Redux, uh, the signature of the uh, reducer is straight and action. It accepts two arguments, straight and action, and it returns the next straight. So it's very similar to the signature of this callback where it has accumulator value and it returns uh, the accumulator. So the straight is being accumulated. And of course, in Redux, it is accumulated over time. You don't reduce uh, really uh, actions at runtime, but the conceptual model is very similar. So this is why we call them reducers. And there is just one reducer you need to specify when you create the store. And usually in the docs, we call it the root reducer. But in reality, uh, you want to keep your code modular. So you create reducers for every part of the street and you can keep them nested. So you can have, uh, for example, entities reducer that manages all kinds of entities like users, posts, uh, whatever. You can have a reducer that manages authentication. You can have reducer that manages routing. And all different stateful parts of your app can be managed by different reducers. And they are just combined to create this single root reducer that you give to Redux. So you have the single state object. And with larger applications, obviously, you have more state to manage. Your, your reducers are returning a new version of that state. So it's an immutable state that returns a new version after the changes have been applied. Um, any memory or performance issues with you know co copying the same object over and over again and just minor modifications to it that you found? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on your application because uh, there are some downsides in terms of memory. Mm -hmm. But then there are upsides in terms of uh, you being able to figure out what needs to be re-rendered and what does not need to be re-rendered. Because if you have immutability, uh, you can do reference uh, check, uh, reference identity check. And uh, this is uh, in Redux, it's enabled by default. So if you use React Redux bindings for React, uh, it's never going to re-render something that has not changed. And because re-rendering is usually more expensive than creating a few objects, uh, Redux has uh, good performance benefits uh, compared to some Flux frameworks that are not, uh, like, they don't have favor immutability. Uh, and this is exactly the reason OM is so fast. You know, there is Java, uh, the Clojure script library called OM that mm -hmm. pioneered the concept of uh, a single state object and actually made people 
uh, treated seriously. Uh, David Nolan uh, was uh, is the author of OM, and he wrote a, an article back then called uh, "The Future of JavaScript MVC Frameworks." And it's a pretty old post. It's uh, it's been a couple of years since then, and uh, David rewrote OM a couple of times, and he's now working on OM Next, which is uh, kind of similar to Relay. So it's uh, uh, the world has uh, since moved on, uh, but um, it, it, it still explains why uh, it's possible to have very fast applications despite uh, immutability. And if you have performance problems, the first thing you can do is you can use uh, a library like Immutable.js. So by default, we don't suggest you to do that because it's just easier to work with uh, regular objects and a lot of people don't want to learn two APIs at the same time. So we don't use Immutable.js in examples. But if you have performance problems because of very large lists and you're dispatching like uh, 10 actions per second, which is probably a bad idea anyway, uh, like what kind of UI needs that? But if you do that, uh, it's fine. But Immutable.js gives you um, immutable data structures that have structural sharing inside. And this is like implementation detail that makes them much more memory efficient because it's not a monolithic object, but under the hood, uh, for example, an immutable array is some kind of tree, and I'm really bad at computer science, as I said, I've dropped out, but it's a tree of objects uh, you don't really access. But if you make a copy uh, that just adds uh, a new value at the end of the array, uh, the whole array is not actually being copied. Mm. Uh, it's just a new object is created that points uh, mostly to that existing tree, and it has like uh, another key that points to the part that you added. And they share the same memory. So they share the same tree when possible because they're immutable. They're not going to change later. Uh, this is why they're able to do that uh, without uh, performance problems. And this is how you can reduce memory usage with Redux. But really, you should profile your app. You should uh, understand the trade-offs. You should build a prototype with the kind of uh, amount of memory and uh, speed uh, mm -hmm. that you want and just uh, stress test it. If it doesn't work for you, fine, you can use Flux or something else. If it works for you, it's great. And again, we don't force you to use immutability. Like, if you really want to, you can mutate things. It's just, we don't encourage it until you know why you're doing it. And it's also possible to use many stores in Redux if you want to, because at this point, it works exactly like Flux. Mm. Right, you just have many stores, and you can subscribe to different stores that you care about. Uh, and again, this is doable. This is just not something we encourage until you profile your app and you know that this uh, is something that will improve its performance. Because usually, it's not. Very good. So let's change pace a little bit and talk about integrating a Redux into user interface libraries and frameworks. So obviously it was built with React in mind. Um, so it plays well with React. Let's start there. Maybe give the a brief story of how you use Flux or Flux, how you use Redux with React. And then I'll ask some questions about some other popular libraries for user interface stuff. Yeah. So initially uh, when I first wrote the first prototypes, uh, of Redux, it had React support built in. Uh, it dependent on React, but uh, early in the course, we decided this was silly because it is not related to React per se. 
and we can just make it separate a binding library. So this is what we did, and it was a good decision in the hindsight. Uh, and uh, we have a library called React Redux uh, that is officially supported, uh, that is uh, performant and uh, made specifically to connect uh, React components to Redux stores uh, with a specific philosophy approach to that, uh, that I used to call it smart dumb components, uh, but people don't like to call components dumb. Uh, so uh, <laughs> now we call them container and presentational components so that components don't get offended. And uh, container, compo <laughs> container components are the components that manage, uh, that are aware of Redux. They get the data from Redux store, they are subscribed to the Redux store, and they, usually they specify the behavior of your app, like what happens when I click that. And presentational components uh, are not usually not aware of Redux. They receive all the data by props. And uh, if you want to move from Redux to something else, you can keep them and just change your container components. And React Redux actually provides you a helper called Connect that will generate the container components for you. So this is basically what React Redux offers. Very good. So let's say I don't want to use React. Maybe I prefer jQuery or Ember. How, if and how can you work with Redux in these other environments? So in case of jQuery, uh, jQuery that would not be very useful because uh, Redux assumes that uh, it can give you the previous state of the app and the next state of the app. And you're somehow going to figure out how to re-render your app in response to the state change, no matter what changed. And if you write jQuery code, it's going to be problematic for you to actually check for every single field that might have changed and update the drum in response. Mm -hmm. But this is exactly the problem that React is solving. So frameworks that have similar conceptual model to React uh, work really well with Redux. And uh, I know there's been an experiment to make it work with Ember, but I don't, I'm not sure if anyone supports it today, but I'm pretty sure people are using React, uh, sorry, Redux with Angular, both the first version and the second version. And if you saw a post called uh, Change Detection in Angular 2, mm -hmm. uh, which was like half a year ago, maybe, uh, it detailed uh, that uh, Angular is moving away from its previous model and is going to be more like React with top-down data flow. So uh, this explains why Redux plays so well with uh, Angular 2 and people are starting to use it together. Another advantage I think would fall out of having a single object for the state of the application is that if that object is serializable, which it probably sh you know, it should be, it's, yeah. It seems like it'd be pretty straightforward to be able to send that object from a server and you know basically boot your application into a, a state. Rehydration, I guess, is another term used. Yeah. Is that something that uh, Redux supports? Yeah, this was one of the other uh, thing, things I wanted to make sure is fixed in Redux mm -hmm. uh, because uh, a lot of Flux, some some. Flux frameworks made this complicated, in my opinion, uh, in terms of you had to implement separate methods uh, to 
actually tell the stores how to hydrate and uh, how to serialize and deserialize the street. Mm. And I felt like it's not really good to force this on developer because it's hard for developer to uh, keep this up to date and to uh, remember to change these methods anytime they change the the, uh, state uh, structure. So I really wanted this to be built in. And this is really simple in Redux. Uh, it is similar to how our ELT framework does it. Uh, although I think it's even simpler with a single store. But basically, you just create a store on the server for every request. You prefill it with the data you care about. Like you can dispatch async actions, make sure you uh, fetch the, the data that needs that, that is required for the first render on the server. And when it's done, uh, you can just uh, call it then, uh, use that promise then. And in the callback, uh, you say that, okay, I'm ready to render. I'm just going to uh, render my app with this state. Uh, and also I'm going to pass uh, this, uh, uh, I'm going to call store that gets state method to get this state object. And yeah, indeed, pass it down to the client, and then in the client, you just pass this trait object as a second argument to create store, and uh, boom, it got this trait uh, you get from the server. Very nice. That sounds pretty awesome. Um, let's see, what else? Any other uh, major points of the architecture, the implementation, maybe even the ecosystem on Redux that you want to go into before we hit this next break? I know you did mention that um, you seem to be very intentional with trying to create or spawn an ecosystem for tools and extensions. Can you maybe touch on that? Yeah. So what I realized is that uh, I'm not going to have all the time in the world. And when I was using Flux, I really wanted to have some kind of um, extensions like record and replay uh, that kind of stuff that is easily implementable uh, outside uh, the uh, outside the framework itself. But the problem was that either uh, mo- most Flux frameworks they were not made to be extensible um, by default. So unlike Express framework, which did a great job at being extensible, this is why it's so popular and core on the server. Uh, on the client, Flux frameworks uh, didn't offer compelling extension points, and they made decisions for you. For example, uh, some frameworks embraced promises, and there was a built-in way to support uh, dispatching async actions with promises, and the framework would know what to do. But then somebody wants to use uh, channels or observables or some other async abstraction that the uh, Flux framework doesn't handle. Uh, or its handling that uh, its handling of promises gets in the way in some cases, and you don't want that. So this, I, I felt like I don't want to make these decisions for the users. I want to make the decisions that the users might not have enough context for uh, to make. Like I want to enforce purity, even if the users are not sold on the benefits of the purity yet, and I want to enforce that uh, all changes happen through actions because this is this is important for me. This makes a lot of nice things possible. So these decisions I want to make, but I don't want to choose the async abstraction because people just use different abstractions, and I want I don't want to be the 
person who uh, gets to decide here. I want to give the freedom to, to choose any abstractions complementary to Redux to the user. And uh, we tried several ways of doing that. And this is exactly where Andrew Clark's help was so uh, instrumental is that he designed the current uh, API of middleware and store enhancers. And there's a lot of middleware for Redux. And I would say that some of it is pretty complicated and I probably wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> uh, but people are still experimenting with what's possible, what makes sense. Uh, and uh, there are some really nice examples of uh, what I can do with middleware because it's just an extension point into Redux where you kind of override this core uh, dispatch and action API and you can do anything there. Like you can uh, catch uh, you can catch errors inside reducers and send them to error reporting ser service or you can support promises natively or you can support observables or channels or you can log every action with the middleware, with the logger middleware and so on. So it's pretty awesome that people are working on this, are experimenting and uh, creating a lot of user land solutions to common problems so we don't have to reinvent the wheel with every project. Very good. Sounds like a great place to take a break. On the other side, we'll talk about getting started with Redux. And of course, we have a good chance to shout out your free video series there, Dan. Uh, we also have a theoretical question for you about perhaps the grass being greener on a different side of the fence. So stay tuned for that and we will be right back. Our friends at Linode are huge fans of the show and they're excited to support what we're doing here at The Changelog. And they want to invite every single listener of The Changelog to try out one of the fastest, most efficient SSD cloud servers on the market. You can get a Linode cloud server up and running in seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and also node location. And they've got eight data centers spread across the entire world. North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, and plans start at just $10 a month. They've got hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services. Get full root access for more control, run VMs, run containers, or even your own private Git server. Enjoy native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors on your servers. Use the code CHANGELOG10 with unlimited uses. Tell your friends it doesn't expire until December 31st, 2016. That's next year. Head to linode.com slash changelog to get started. And now back to the show. All right, we are back with Dan Abramov. Dan, we're all excited. Redux sounds really cool. A lot of huge wins in using it. The question is, how do you get started? And I'm sure many of our listeners are wondering, what's the best way? Of course, there's many ways you can just start Googling, reading docs. But um, if you had brand new eyes and you're coming to Redux as a potential user, what were the first steps that you would take to get started on your way to success? Great question. Uh, I think I would start uh, with watching my uh, video series, which I created exactly for this purpose. Uh, I watched people learn Redux for a couple of months uh, by now. And uh, I've seen people making the same kind of mistakes or the same kind of um, misunderstandings of Redux. And people missed out on some powerful patterns that uh, Redux offers. Uh, so. Uh, I, I was contacted by uh, the guys from Akhat, uh, which is uh, an awesome video tutorial site. Uh, they've got free and paid videos. Uh, and they 
I think initially they just contacted me to uh, to record something uh, about hotel loading, but I never got to do it. And they sent me the equipment. The the mic I'm talking to uh, right now is actually there, uh, present to me, so to say. Their nice. investment, and and I kept saying like, uh, yeah, guys, I know, uh, I feel so bad about it, but yeah, I, I'll get around to doing something. And later, uh, Redux came out, and a lot of people requested Redux tutorials, and uh, Joe uh, was, uh, and a lot of people inside Akkad uh, who work uh, for Akkad. Who record videos for Akkad uh, wanted to do Redux tutorials, but Joe insisted that hey, we need to give Dan some time. Uh, he's gonna do it. Uh, let him be the first. And I'm very grateful of, uh, to Joel for this opportunity and for uh, bearing with me for <laughs> so many months. But anyway, it was November, and I previously I raised some money to work on a React Loader and Redux uh, for three months. And I actually saved it up a little bit so uh, I could work uh, one more month uh, without doing any full-time job before joining Facebook. And I decided to dedicate this time to creating uh, a bunch of uh, tutorial videos that are targeted at people who kind of, uh, who know JavaScript, uh, but they may not be experts and who know some React, but not much more than that and who are curious how, uh, to, how to build a simple application with Redux without prior Flux experience. So I recorded 30 lessons over the course of uh, a month. They are bite-sized, uh, like three or four minutes each. And they touch on the concepts I think are the most important. Uh, I'm very sorry, it's a to-do app. Uh, I'm building a to-do app uh, no. during this tutorial. but. <laughs> I actually, uh, yeah, I know some people uh, hated it, but I get a lot of great feedback. And personally, I think To Do App is the best medium for explaining how to structure state mutations in some kind of framework. And of course, uh, my uh, my video series it doesn't touch on asynchronous requests yet, and a lot of people were sad about it. Uh, but we really need solid foundations before you can jump to making async requests. So if you're looking for solid understanding of Redux fundamentals, of Redux patterns, and in fact, of how Redux is implemented, because in some lessons I just show uh, how you can implement this Redux function in 10 lines, uh, it's a great way to, uh, to start. And after you, and these tutorials, they will be, they are free and they will be free uh, this is something I wanted to give back to community before joining an entire company. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think you should check those out. And if you if you like them, uh, feel free to buy a subscription to say thank you to uh, the people who gave me the opportunity to actually work in that and host it for free uh, and who gave me the equipment, of course. Yeah. So uh, this is the, a good start. And after that, I think you're prepared enough to work through the docs. The basic parts of the docs uh, is pretty much the same we cover in the uh, in the these video tutorials, but there is the advanced section. It covers asynchronous, uh, it, it covers middleware. So this is something you want to read after that. And you should check out uh, some, uh, I have an ecosystem page in the docs that uh, links to great articles, tutorials, examples, that I personally vetted, uh, these are really good uh, 
So I recommend you uh, look at them. And I want to highlight one example in particular. It's called uh, Sound Redux. And this is uh, just, uh, just a sound client, uh, sound, SoundCloud client uh, built by a guy called Andrew that uh, is built on top of Redux. And it's not a lot of code, but it gives a pretty good idea of how a real-world Redux application is structured. The to-do application, is it the same one that you used in the, the presentation for your, uh, what was it before, Jared? It was a conference talk as something development, basically. It was the, the hot reloading talk you gave at React Europe in 2015 this year? No, not exactly. Not the I same mean, one? No, it's just, in the conference, I just uh, wrote uh, part of the to-do app live uh, at, at the conference, which is pretty crazy. That was really me. cool. I like that. <laughs> it was, was nice to see you like break your own code and be like, where is it? Okay, here it is. And you kind of like yeah. walked everybody through it. And it's, you kind of see this, uh, your mind unfolding on how you, you know, you're, you're pulling back the, the data from different objects and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting. I like that. Yeah. But th this one actually, uh, I think in the, uh, in the video tutorials, I show uh, some things that I did not think about, uh, think about completely when I was writing the docs. So tutorials are actually a better source right now than the docs because I changed some um, the way I recommend to build React docs applications a little bit uh, for the tutorials. Cool. And uh, as you could tell, we did a bit of research to to kind of dig or dig into this call with you and uh, just searching on YouTube for Dan for your name and then also Redux was very helpful. And and upon that journey, I, I stumbled upon this. Uh, kind of pulling different ideas together that you shared, it seems like you're, you're all for functional programming in JavaScript versus something like Elm or ClojureScript. And it, it sounded to me like you were advocating more like go down the Redux path and functional programming in JavaScript versus these other functional languages. Can you talk a bit about your thoughts and opinions on that? I wouldn't say that. Um, I mean, you really should. Uh, and I, this is me giving an advice that I don't follow. So you probably shouldn't pay attention, but I think I think you should go out of your way to use uh, different things that exist elsewhere, like ClojureScript and Elm, just to get a sense of these ideas and how um, how different constraints uh, can make these ideas work. Because uh, a lot of Elm's ideas work so great because in Elm you have completely static typing; it is completely pure. So. It is a different environment from JavaScript, a very different environment. Mm -hmm. And if you want to enforce similar things, you, you start thinking like, can I bring these constraints in some way to JavaScript or even should I, or should I take advantage of JavaScript's uh, powerful sites that uh, these, constra these constraints eliminate? So you should definitely check out those, uh, those projects of different languages. And uh, if you like them, of course, you should use them and uh, collaborate them. Uh, and there are many Elm enthusiasts out there, I know that. Uh, but what I'm saying is that please let us know. Like, if you, if you find some really neat pattern or uh, some really nice way to build UI applications and you only share it with your language community and you don't really uh, speak about it at JavaScript conferences, uh, it's a problem uh, for us and it's sad for us. 
And I think you should uh, go out of your way to evangelize the good things you learn elsewhere. And maybe somebody will get inspired by your talk and build something cool in JavaScript, even if you don't work in JavaScript. And of course, people like David Nolan and uh, Evan and pretty much everywhere in ClojureScript and Elm ecosystem are doing exactly that. So big thanks to them. Let me ask, ask you this. So you've, you've poked your head up from your sublime text and you're you know, surveying the ecosystem and you're seeing cool things that Elm is doing and you're seeing cool things with Ohm in ClojureScript. These other uh, languages, functional languages, um, building very similar type apps that Redux and React are, um, are building. And do you ever think, well, maybe I should just go hop in that pool? Um, and see if the water really is warm? Or do you always come back to JavaScript? And if the latter, why? What brings you back? Why aren't you, why aren't you saying, wow, Elm is amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop in all, all in on Elm. Uh, I think it's practical concerns. And I'm not saying that Elm is impractical. In fact, the opposite, because I know that some uh, large applications are being built uh, in Elm right now. And mm-hmm. you should check out... Uh, Richard, Richard Fieldman, I believe, uh, who's advocating a lot for Elm and he's uh, writing a blog about how uh, they use Elm in production. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're a small startup uh, that is willing to try something like this, uh, it's amazing learning opportunity. So if I, was, uh, <laughs> if I went back uh, three years ago and I was offered a job uh, doing Elm, I would take it. <laughs> uh, even if I didn't know Elm, just because it's a, it's a very vibrant community and it feels like they are doing a lot of right things. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can't do that right now because now I'm working for a big company and before I used to just do a lot of projects in React ecosystem and I was busy with my own projects. I, uh, I was busy with supporting them and I can't really uh, go ahead and do something else and abandon everyone. So... It's just not something I can do right now, but mm. I'd like to try it. Yep. So the man's getting you down. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. <laughs> there is so much learning in JavaScript world too. Absolutely. Uh, it's moving so fast. Yeah. So I'm actually counting on JavaScript in terms of um, good ideas. It feels like good ideas are surfacing in JavaScript eventually. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit slower, but... Um, it's worth looking at too. Well, we are uh, getting to that time of our closing questions. Jared, is there anything else you wanted to cover before we tail out and start uh, asking some of our closing questions? No, I'm super excited to hear about uh, Dan's open source radar, considering he seems to have his uh, thumb on the pulse. Yeah, let's start there then. So, Dan, the question basically is, what's on your open source radar? You can also flavor that as language radar. Uh, pattern radar, library radar, you know, what's what's out there that maybe you haven't had a chance to touch or play with yet? And if you had a weekend, uh, what would it be that you play with? Okay, so <laughs> don't count on this being too interesting because I haven't been keeping up with, the, uh, with what's happening lately. But uh, I'd say I'm really excited about some lower level uh, languages because I'm a higher level language person and I'm always uh, feeling... Uh, like, I, I don't know anything uh, when I speak to people who are low level. So I'm pretty excited about languages like Rust and Swift that are more low level, but but not 
as pain as painful to work with as C. So they have some functional niceties. And if I had some time, I definitely played uh, with some uh, lower level language like Rust. And in terms of JavaScript frameworks, you probably heard that anyway, but I'm I'm excited about Rx uh, reactive extensions, which have been rewritten uh, right now. There is uh, Rx 5 beta. Uh, it's currently developed by uh, uh, by Netflix mostly uh, because they use it a lot. Uh, and um, Ben has done an amazing job of uh, like figuring out what needs to go into this release because it's a bit different from all previous releases, and it's very performant. Uh, they, are, they are focusing on performance a lot. And if there is one pattern, if you know promises, but you're, you don't know observables, uh, you are doing yourself a, a disservice. So you should uh, go ahead and read about Rx, read about observables. Uh, don't confuse them with Ember observables or KVO. This is not about key value observing. This is about observable pattern and uh, Reactive, uh, reactive programming is very interesting and helpful, even if you don't plan to do that. And then there is um, there is a framework called Cycle, uh, developed by uh, Andreas Stoltz. And again, if you followed my Twitter, you probably already heard of that a thousand times. But it's interesting. Uh, it's it's like bringing a Haskell-like uh, approach to UI to JavaScript, uh, keeping side effects at the edges of your application is something that he calls drivers. And uh, your whole UI logic is built on observables. So you specify how observables of user input map to observables of the virtual DOM. And I'm not saying this is the future, but it's really interesting. It's something you should check out. And of course, Elm, I already said that Elm is an interesting language. Uh, you should watch Evan's talks about Elm and how he tries to make it user-friendly in terms of compilation errors, uh, in terms of uh, the uh, development experience. This is really Ill illuminating and interesting. So Elm is a good one. Other than that, I'm not sure I have something to say because I, ha I haven't been keeping up. No, I think... I think you said plenty. I think you've been keeping up more than you uh, gave yourself credit for. Uh, quick note, if you are interested in Rust, check out episode 151, where we had Steve and Yehuda Katz on the show uh, all around the, the the Rust language. In fact, we had a nice tweet about that uh, recently. Somebody who loved that show. Um, let's see if I can find it. Yes, so here we are, real-life retweet. Uh, Olivier Morel says, Nice interview by Changelog about hashtag Rustlang could give it a try in the following weeks. Smiley face. So there you have it. <laughs> uh, my first ever real life retweet. Check out that show. Next question for you, Dan. And the final one is programming hero. So do you have somebody who inspires you or you look up to a mentor, a hero um, that you would like to give a shout out to on the show and tell us why they are your programming hero? Yeah, sure. Although... Mm, I think we have a little unhealthy obsession uh, with personalities uh, in JavaScript world and elsewhere in programming because mm -hmm. people, uh, and me included, uh, we learn different things uh, because we have the privilege to actually, uh, like, like I said, uh, I was able to not pay my rent because my mom did that and my grandma bought me the books. 
and I could afford to drop out of the college and not worry about the, the job for some time and so on. So uh, this privilege accumulates. And uh, I don't think it's very healthy to say like, hey, these people are heroes. Uh, let's put them on t-shirts and everywhere and worship them. Uh, I, I don't advocate them. But um, I think for me, the, the people I look up to, um, there are several of them. Uh, some of them are for, from React team because I like React a lot. And uh, one of them is Jordan, uh, Jordan Walk or Woke, I'm not sure, uh, who actually came up with React. And despite people saying like, this is a crazy idea, it's not going to work. Uh, he, he was just persistent enough to keep trying to, uh, you know, make it uh, something that, uh, that to prove that it, it, this concept, this declarative rendering is actually useful and uh, this crazy dumb different idea can work. And so uh, this is something I really admire. And he's doing some really interesting experiments at Facebook that uh, you can't really uh, see if you're not working at Facebook. So there is another benefit of working at Facebook. You can, you can see Jordan stuff. Mm. And uh, I also look up to Sebastian Magbage, who's uh, one of the core reacting members, uh, because he's just so, um, he's very, he's very, enga he's engaging with the community. Uh, and he's, he has a high, very high level vision of the project, but on the other hand, he also dives into very low level details and he cares a lot about, uh, the APIs and, uh, how to not force the users to learn functional concepts, but gradually teach them and provide escape hatches, uh, in case where we can't educate them enough or we don't know enough. So this compassionate uh, kind of uh, way to develop open source uh, software is something uh, I think I, uh, I, I, I was insp inspired by Sebastian in how he does that. And uh, if I had to pick another uh, person I admire, uh, I think that would be um, St Steve, Steven uh, Klubnik, I think from the Rust community, uh, because he's just so nice on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, he, he reminds me that software is mostly about people and solving people's problems uh, and not about the code or um, the, the kind of, you know, of course it is about the code, but it's the code to solve people's problems. And so community comes first. Well, Dan, we've had a, a fun, long, deep conversation with you, not only about uh, your roots, where you came from, but also some of the inspirations that uh, led to creating Redux and all the work you've been doing to get to work at Facebook. And I, I want to rewind kind of a sort of a bit and just re-mention this unique path you took to pitch a talk that you didn't quite have fully ready, this tutorial fully ready. You got that. And that was a big ticket to one, being able to afford to go to that conference and two, being able to be uh, to have the visibility to Facebook and get to this job that you now have. So I think that's really inspiring to the listening audience thinking like if you want to make it you just kind of have to hack your way there and get there by any means necessary so i, I gotta applaud you on on that front is there anything that uh any advice anything you want to share back to the audience as we close out the show uh i think it's really important to find your audience 
this is uh, in relation to what I said uh, with regards to uh, finding the ecosystem, a young and uh, young ecosystem where you can uh, make impact. So this is what worked for me. I found an ecosystem where my work can uh, yield uh, some impact uh, because it's just uh, there's just so little stuff that uh, my my work can be valuable. And when you do that, uh, you have an opportunity to gain the audience. And uh, I think this is uh, what was really important to me. I got a Twitter account. I started tweeting. I started uh, writing some Medium articles, uh, sharing uh, what I found, what I learned. And uh, the audience kept growing. And this helped me with everything. This helped me with, uh, with the connections, with uh, being on the conference, uh, with getting here in the UK. So find the ecosystem, find the audience, uh, and share your work. If you can, you, I mean, not everybody has the privilege to be able to do that, but if you can, it's, it's a good way to uh, have a, a better job in the future. Well said, well said. Well, thank you, Dan, for uh, joining us. And thanks also to our wonderful listeners who listen every single week to this show. We ship the show on Fridays. Uh, and also to our members who support us. If you're out there and you're thinking, man, I love the changelog and I want to support what they're doing. You can go to changelog.com slash membership and join the community for just 20 bucks a year. And we'll give you an all access pass to everything we do. That's access to our members only Slack room, exclusive discounts we get from our favorite products, AKA our trusted partners. Uh, we also give you half off of our super awesome changelog tee. Who would want to hack in a changelog tee, Jared? I don't know. That's crazy. But, Pretty much uh, all I wear, bro. I know that's, that's what I'm wearing right now. It's, it's comfy. But uh, Dan, again, thanks so much for joining us. I also want to say thanks to our awesome sponsors for supporting this show. Today's show is sponsored by CodeShip, TopTal, Braintree, and also Linode. But uh, that's the tail end of the show. So everyone, let's say goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me.